0: Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. Turn to the book of Mark. That's where we are today, Gospel of Mark. Questions Jesus asks is still our topic and questions that we all should probably answer at some point or another. We're in the Gospel of Mark today looking at a story in chapter 5, if you will turn there. And for Mark, it is a story that is uncharacteristically detailed and unusually long for him. He is a Reader's Digest version kind of guy. Typically, the Gospel of Mark is more like USA Today. Give me the headlines, the salient details, and that's all I want to know. But this one is a little bit longer. A lot of times, Mark, you can tell he's moving the story along. And even in this longer story today in chapter 5, he, his favorite word is immediately. He uses it dozens and dozens and dozens of times. Immediately to move that story along. But this one he takes a little bit of time with. And so I say it's a little uncharacteristic of him. Let's take a look at it. Matthew, Mark 5. Begin at verse 21 is where we will pick it up. And it's really a sandwich story, and we're going to ignore the middle of the sandwich today and just deal with the first piece of bread and the bottom piece of bread. But it's one of those sandwich stories which uh, you see in the Gospels sometimes. A story starts, something interrupts it, and then the story ends. Well, it starts this way. Jesus had just left that area of the country where he had delivered a demoniac. If you read Luke's account, it's two demoniacs. But he had delivered these fellows from devils that had invaded their bodies, and he, being stronger than the devils, had beat them at their own game, delivered the men, and then had crossed back over the lake via the boat. And now he's on the other side, and a large crowd gathers around him. Maybe they've heard about what he did over there. But he doesn't even have a chance, hardly to get out of the boat. They catch him beside the lake. A large crowd pins him in, and he begins to deal with them and talk to them and love on them. When elbowing through the crowd comes a ruler of the synagogue, synagogues had people that taught, but then they had people that took care of business. This man probably was the president of the synagogue, he was the leader. He elbows his way through the crowd, getting to Jesus. He appears before him. We know this man's name, Jairus. Jairus appears before Jesus with an urgent request, and he pleads with him earnestly, Please, immediately, come to my house, because my little girl, a 12-year-old, is desperately sick. And when I left her, she was on the point of death almost, and the doctors had done their best, but they hadn't been a great deal of help. Well, When Jesus hears about this, he begins to leave the side of the lake and he begins to make his way through town, but the crowd is still pushing around him. That's when the middle of the sandwich in this story falls into place and we'll not deal with it today, but it involves a woman who was bleeding and had been for a number of years and had been unable to be cured by any medical science. Uh, We know that from this gospel, that the doctors had done all they could. In fact, she had spent all her money on doctors. Just a side note, nothing to do with our story today, but when Dr. Luke, who is a medical doctor, writes the other gospel, Gospel of Luke, when he tells this story, he very carefully omits the part about, and doctors could not cure her. So even back then, doctors were covering their backside, weren't they? But the woman, as it turns out, you know the story, she is healed because she says, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, she does, she's healed. Jesus unconsciously heals her. But it's caused a delay for Jairus, who's very urgent. You can imagine as Jesus is dealing with the woman and asking the questions and interviewing and who touched me and, and talking, and that this man is standing there very anxious. Maybe even verbally, Jesus, please, please, my girl. And finally, when the woman has been healed and she's all fine, he resumes the journey toward Jairus' house and the sick girl. When some men, maybe some hired men, maybe some brothers in the synagogue, they approach Jairus and Jesus with the worst of the worst news. Your daughter is dead. I don't think there's any way to get news like that that's easy. But that seems especially harsh, doesn't it? Your daughter is dead. And then they tell him, why are you fooling around with Jesus now? Forget Jesus, implying he can't do anything now. Why bother the teacher, the rabbi, anymore? Jesus ignores what those messengers of death have said. And he brushes them aside. They say, Why why are you bothering with Jesus anymore? He ignores what they've said. And he tells the president of the synagogue, the grieving father who's just been hit with a thunderbolt, Don't be afraid, just believe. You can imagine the man is starting to fall apart. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Don't be afraid. Just believe. And then Jesus proceeded to the house. He didn't want anybody else with him, so he takes three of his men only. He leaves the rest of the crew behind. He's trying to get away from this crowd. And now there's another crowd that has fastened itself around the house, the house of death now. And when they finally approach the home of Jairus, there's this commotion all around it. There's this noise, there's this chaos that is attending the death of this little girl. And there are people crying, and some of them are crying out of genuine grief. But it was a custom in those days that there would be professional mourners that would come along. And they would amp the volume. And the thinking was, the more grief and the more crying, the more honor you're showing to the dead. And so these professional mourners are there, and they're doing their very best because they will be paid according to how loudly they cry. So they're there. When Luke tells the story, he says, Flute players have come to play these dirges, these sad songs of mourning. And there's milling and there's people and there's crying. And it's bedlam, it's noise, it's chaos. Jesus enters into all of that. It says when he saw that commotion and people crying and wailing loudly, that he's got a comment, he's got a question. It's kind of interesting The original word for wailing, the kind of crying that those professionals were doing is a Greek word, alalazantas, alalazantas. It's one of those words, remember in English class they taught you about onomatopoeia? That's where a word sounds like what it is, bang! That sounds like what it is. I'm going to crack you in the head. That sounds like what it is, right? Well, la zantas is one of those words. Because what the professional mourners would have been screaming in as high a pitch as they could was la 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 la. Can you imagine? Well, let's not imagine. On the count of 3, everybody as high as you can say it. Ah, la, 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 la. Ready? No, don't anybody not do it. If you see somebody not a ah, la, 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 and you elbow them, okay? Everybody is you, We're going to see what it was. We don't have to imagine it. Here we go. One, two, three. <laughs> he walks into that and says, what's this commotion? That's his question. Why all this commotion? And then he proceeds into the home. Again, that house of death. And as he's entering, while this commotion, the child is not dead but asleep. And the crying turns to laughing. That tells you how sincere the tears were. They instantly on a dime begin to laugh at him when he says she's not dead. She's just asleep. And they horse laugh at him. Makes me realize that their tears were not all that sincere. But he enters the house. He puts all those people out. He doesn't want that crew following him in. He goes to the child's room with father and mother and three of his men only. And he went into where the child was and he takes her by the hand. And he says to her in the language of the people, Aramaic, the common language, Talitha kumai, little girl, get up. Get up. wish we had video. I imagine that her eyes begin to flutter. And she's got the flush of death on her. She is cold. But she begins to warm up. Fingers begin to twitch. And then it says what happened next is she sat up. Can you imagine the joy in those parents' hearts? And Jesus says thinking about every detail, knowing, maybe remembering what it was like to be 12. I remember what it was like to be 12. I was always tired and always hungry. And he says to her, to them, get her something to eat. Feed this kid. That's the miracle. That's the miracle. Now when some people read this story, Think about it. They stumble over some of the words of Jesus. They stumble over it when He says, "This little girl is just asleep." She's not dead, just asleep." And some people look at this story and say, "Well, if she's just asleep, it's not that great a miracle, is it?" She, she wasn't really dead, but she was actually what we modern people would call some kind of a catatonic state, or she is in a coma. Of some kind. But she wasn't dead, she was asleep. And so it's not that big a deal because we modern people know what was going on with that sleep. A couple of problems with that. Number one, Mark is not writing to modern readers. Hate to burst your bubble, but he didn't have you in mind when he was writing this gospel. He had people a lot closer to home than you. So he's not writing to modern readers. In any way, Jesus is not being a medical diagnostician here. He's not playing the role of the coroner here. Like we say, passed away. They said asleep. There's a second problem with saying, oh, she was just asleep. It wasn't that big a deal. He just woke her up second problem is like the dramatic raising of Lazarus. Remember that miracle in John's Gospel? The raising of Lazarus is the last of seven signs in the Gospel of John. And and here in in Mark's Gospel, there have been a series of miracles. There's been an encounter and deliverance of the demoniacs. He, He has spoken and said, Be quiet to a raging storm on the sea. And it was quiet. And he unconsciously healed somebody because she unconsciously, to him unconscious, touched him. And he healed the woman with the issue of blood. There had been a string of miracles here in Mark. And this miracle, the raising of this little 12-year-old, is the climax to a long run of miracles. This one will be the greatest and the most memorable you can imagine. But his question is in verse 39. The question Jesus asks is, why all this commotion? If you're a King James Bible reader, it says, why make ye this ado? Ado. <laughs> Makes me think about that phrase that we all know, much ado about nothing. You're using Shakespeare. Shakespeare. Much ado about nothing. That's what he's saying here. Why all this commotion? Well, now think about it. Why do we fall apart? When things happen, why do we fall apart? Well, sometimes I think it's because we're afraid. We're afraid of things being out of our control. We're afraid that we will experience pain. We're afraid that there will be a disruption in the way we like to live life and what we're used to. And so we fall apart because we're afraid. Most specifically, we're afraid of loss. You know, fear. Fear is a powerful thing sometimes. And fear, like a cold, toxic, odorless fog, it begins to creep in when we lose something we need or we lose somebody we love. We begin to fear. And it creeps in. We fear things will never, ever, ever be the same again. We'll never be happy again. We'll never be sane again. We're afraid of loss. We're afraid of being alone. We're afraid, afraid that we'll have to, now somebody's gone, we'll have to face the future alone or sickness alone or our losses all by ourselves. Or We fear being forgotten. There's the fear that we'll have to die alone. You see, we were not designed to be alone. We weren't, we weren't made to be alone. We, we were made to be very social creatures, you see. And it, it, you know it's tough to function. It's tough to be healthy when you're all alone, right? Solitary confinement, that's why it drives people insane. Because we weren't meant to be alone the scariest stories that we know anything about people like edgar Allan poe write about talk about being totally alone in a walled-off room in a sealed basement in a casket alone those are the reasons we fall apart but as you enter this story And that's what we're supposed to do. We're not supposed to read these stories and just pull out a few little clever principles for living. But we're to enter this story and we're to live this story because this is is a story he told, and we enter this story and we're part of his story. So as we enter this story, you can see all sorts of reasons not to fall apart. We don't have to fall apart. It's not required. The way Jesus says is, just believe. Just believe. That's the antidote to falling apart. And that's because belief works way better than fear. And what are those fears again? Well, we, we fear that they, we will have no control, or we fear pain, or we fear a rupturing of our life and our routine and what we've always counted on. and and we fear losing somebody that we've always counted on. A few times in his career, Jesus will show no regard for what's going on around him. He will ignore the circumstances. And there's one of those in verse 36 when the father is told, what's the point now? She's dead. No need to bother with Jesus. Jesus just brushes that nonsense aside. But that happens to a lot of people just the same way it does to these people here. You expect God to do something in a certain way, and when it doesn't work out to your satisfaction, you say, what do I need Him for anymore? I Just talked with somebody in our church about a neighbor that's had that experience. Walked with the Lord for a long time. Had a tragedy come into his life and walked away from God because what do I need Him for anymore? It's at that point that a lot of people do walk away from God. I can't get out of him what I want and when I want it. So why should I bother with Jesus? He's not the cosmic bellhop that I expected him to be. So why should I fool around with him? Why bother? Well, the father in this story has not yet absorbed the shock of the awful announcement. His daughter is dead. He hasn't even had a minute to take that in. And and heaped on top of all that now is this negativity heaped on top of his grief. Why bother with Jesus? It's even ridicule, isn't it? Why fool around with Jesus now? It's a personal attack on Jesus too, but he dismisses it all. Don't be afraid. Just believe. That's all you've got to do. Don't be afraid, just believe. Fear is only and always destructive. Fear contributes nothing. Fear solves nothing. Fear can be used and exploited by the enemy. Did you know that? Well, he'll jump in with all fours on that. Remember, one of the enemy, one of his names is Beelzebub. That's one of his Old Testament Hebrew Scripture names, Beelzebub. It means Lord of the Flies, and what that name is telling us about him and his function is that he doesn't necessarily cause every bad thing, or well, he'd love to take credit for it, but he doesn't necessarily cause every awful thing that happens, but he's like flies. Flies don't always cause every wound, but when flies see a wound, they're there. And they bring their germs and their bacteria, and they cause that wound that even though they did not cause it, they cause it to fester. They make it much worse and much more toxic and deadly. The enemy is like that with our fear. He will be Lord of the flies. He will use it to his advantage. But fear is only destructive. It gives us nothing. It solves nothing. It can be exploited by the Lord of the flies. And fear will become a festering point in our lives. Accomplishes nothing. Don't feed fear. Only believe. Because belief works when everything else seems lost. Do you get that in this story? They get the worst of the worst news, these parents. Everything seems lost. Jesus says, believe, you realize the the overwhelming power of belief? Dr. Luke, when he tells this story, helps us to see the depth of the grief in these parents. Because Dr. Luke catches a little detail that Mark somehow missed. And he tells us that this little girl, who is now dead, is their only child. Maybe it's a late-in-life child. Maybe it's what we call a miracle baby. But it's their only child. And she's died. And the situation looks hopeless. And everything is lost for these broken parents. If you've ever seen that happen, you don't forget it. The worst of the worst for a parent has got to be the loss of a child. This situation is hopeless for them, and they're broken. And I've seen that total brokenness in people's lives who've lost a child. It's a loss that's so devastating that it can collapse the strongest of people. Thinking of a lady I knew very well, and her... Her son died at 11, cancer. She never got out from under that. Four years later, she died. Her heart was crushed, broken. That's what the doctor said. Her heart broke. It really does happen. And it can can collapse the strongest of people, you see. God has always sustained And delivered his people even when things were hopeless though. Isaiah says you will keep them in perfect peace. Whose mind is steadfast. Whose mind is stayed on you. Because they trust in you. They believe in you. Later on Isaiah will say this. When you pass through the waters I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers they will not sweep over you. And when you walk through the fire, it will not scorch you, for I, the Lord, am your God. I am your Savior. You see, talk to Moses about that time when his back was to the sea and the only thing separating him and slaughter was a wisp of a cloud between them. And God came through. God came through and not only got them all out, but he forever made sure that that marauding, murderous army would never ever chase them again. Talk to David, and he'll tell you how God delivers even when everything seems absolutely hopeless. If you've got your Bible with you, turn to 1 Samuel 17. You may want to come back and look at this later on today. Verse 44, here's the giant talking to David. It's just David and the giant out on the battlefield. It's empty except for those two. And the giant thunders out at little David. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And this day the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. And today I'll give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And all those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's and He will give all of you into our hands. A little bit later on, he lets him know the reason I got these five stones is you've got four ugly brothers, and I'm going to take them out too. We don't need to be afraid, you see? You can say the same thing to the giants in your life and watch God knock them down, too. You you could talk to somebody like Jehoshaphat, or talk to somebody like Daniel in that underground pit with lions for his company, or those three boys in a hot furnace. The point is, when all seemed lost for Moses and David and Jehoshaphat and Daniel and now Jairus, it's all lost. Belief worked. And when all seems lost for you, belief, it will work for you too. Just believe. Fear doesn't work. Belief does. Belief is powerful. Just believe. You know know why belief is better than fear? Why it works when everything else seems lost? Belief works, listen to me, because of Christ. Only believe what? Wrong question. Only believe whom? Whom? You can believe the critics or the quitters who say, don't bother Jesus anymore. Don't mess with him anymore. You can listen to the negativity peddlers. I'd rather listen and believe Jesus. John 14, just before his high priestly prayer, Jesus says to us, let not your heart be troubled. There can be a a whole raft of reasons for heart trouble. There can be sickness and sadness and reversals and wounds in our spirit that cause our hearts to hurt. There can be losses that are great and our hearts ache. And he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. You see, he can speak peace to my heart. He he will absorb the troubles. Let not your heart be troubled, just believe. He has a grand plan in my Father's house. If it weren't so, I would have told you. He tells the truth, and He will come back, and we will one day be with Him. I can believe that. I can believe that he'll absorb my troubles. I can believe that he has a plan. I can believe that he tells the truth. And as far as him coming back, I can believe that too. And I can believe that one day we'll be with him. I can believe that. See. Fear, you know what fear is? It's forgetting. It's forgetting. Forgetting what God has already done. As Moses is giving his swan song, standing on the side of the mountain and all the people are listening, it's the last time they'll hear him. We call it the book of Deuteronomy. He recites everything that's happened up to that point and how God has intervened in their lives and how they've walked with him. It's one long extended speech, Deuteronomy. And throughout the thing, he's telling them over and over again remember, 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 remember. Because we have a tendency to forget, forget, forget. And fear is forgetting, forgetting all of the times God has come through. Fear is forgetting. I found two letters a couple of weeks ago. between a man and a woman, husband and wife, little short letters. A man by the name of Roger Zerbe, he was suffering from early onset of Alzheimer's. He was way too young, but somehow it had picked him. And one day, after a particularly troubling bout of forgetfulness early on, He sat down and he wrote a little note to his wife because he wasn't sure how fast this thing would progress. He might forget. So he wrote a little note. He said, honey, today fear is taking over. The day is coming when all my memories of this life that we share will be gone. You and the boys will be gone from me. I will lose you even as I'm surrounded by you. I don't want to leave you. I want to grow old in the warmth of memories. So forgive me for leaving so slowly and painfully. Well, his wife found that note. And blinking back the tears, here's what his wife Becky wrote back to him. I will continue to go on loving you and caring for you. Not because you know me or remember our life, but because I remember you. I will remember the man who proposed to me and told me that he loved me. I'll remember the look on his face when his children were born, the father he was, the way he loved our extended family. I'll recall his love for riding, hiking, reading, His tears at sentimental movies, the unexpected witty remarks, and how He held my hand when we prayed, I cherish the pleasure, obligation, commitment, and opportunity to care for you because I remember you. Fear is forgetting. But even when we fear, Christ remembers he says, I will never leave you. You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.